Parker Palmer, welcome to the New School. Thank you, Michael. Good to be with you. I'm really thrilled to be talking with you. I've uh, followed your work for many, many years. Uh, For those who don't know you, let me just say that you are a writer, lecturer, and activist who focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. And you are often considered by many a master teacher And although your work has centered uh, in uh, uh, working with uh, teachers, uh, you've gone far beyond that uh, into corporations, foundations, grassroots organizations, religious organizations, and institutions, and uh, and many other uh, organizations and places where your work has really spoken to people. Uh, You've published a dozen poems, over a hundred essays, and seven books, including A Hidden Wholeness, Let Your Life Speak, The Courage to Teach, The Active Life, To Know As We Are Known, The Company of Strangers, and The Promise of Paradox. And today, when I asked you what we might focus on, you suggested an essay that you wrote that has been published by the Fetzer Institute as part of its series on deepening the American dream. And the essay is called The Politics of the Brokenhearted, on holding the tensions of democracy. And it comes out of your latest book, your seventh book, uh, A Hidden Wholeness. So let me start, Parker, by asking you this. Uh, uh, The bombing of the World Trade Centers was obviously a a turning point uh, in American history. And that is part of what you focus on in this essay on the politics of the brokenhearted. What do you think happened with the bombing of the World Trade Center? Well, it it seems to me that 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 moment in American life, September 11, 2001, to put it in its simplest terms, um, set up an incredible tension in American hearts, minds, and in the body politic. And it's a tension, of course, that's uh, very familiar to the human race because it's the one that tends to trigger our uh, fight-or-flight hard wiring, as they say. Um, This this difficulty we have in holding moments of tension without either striking back at the perceived source of our our discomfort or our anguish in this case, um, or running away. And um, I got to thinking... um, in that moment, especially given the fact that that our nation state, like all nation states, um, decided to to strike back rather than to hold the tension and to see what might creatively emerge from it, I I got to thinking about the difficulty that we have in 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 personal, professional, and social life, political life, in in holding these tensions that that if we could hold them might open us um, in creative ways to new possibilities. And very concretely, in the wake of September 11th, I remember, and I'm sure many of us, many Americans do remember, that, that so many folks in the world were saying, today I am an American. Uh, even people who had been hurt by America's foreign policy or America's uh, economic acquisitiveness, uh, even greed. Um, people were saying, I can identify with the pain that Americans are now feeling because 
I, we, my people feel it every day. And, of course, when we struck back, that, that sense of identification and the creative opportunities that it, it, that it opened to us, all of that disappeared. And we were back in, into something that, that the human race knows all too well, the, the, the short name for which is war. But uh, I got to thinking about this in relation and, uh, to this theme of brokenheartedness, Michael, because it struck me that, that, that this is a time of great brokenheartedness for everyone concerned, um, and, and that the, the broken heart can, can go one of two ways. Either it can be that explosive shattering like a hand grenade where the tension sets you off into a paroxysm of anger uh, and retaliation, um, or the broken heart can be held in quite a different and, and much more creative way, where instead of being broken into a million uh, shrapnel-like pieces, the heart is broken open into largeness and into a greater capacity to hold human suffering and, and human joy. So those were the originating thoughts for this essay you mentioned called The Politics of the Brokenhearted. You quote a Hasidic story uh, about um, the teaching of the Torah uh, with respect to uh, a different way of having the heart break. Uh, do you remember that story? And can you I sure do. It's, I treasure it. Jerry Needleman, Jacob Needleman, a great writer and philosopher, told me this Hasidic tale about the, uh, the disciple who comes to the rabbi and says, why does the Torah tell us to, to lay the, the sacred words upon our hearts? Why not, why not put them in our hearts? And uh, the rabbi responds, it's because our hearts as they are are too hard to take the words in, the sacred words of Scripture. But if, if we will lay them on our hearts, then someday the heart will break and the words can fall in. And I have found images along those lines, really the, the theme, of course, being that of the internalization of wisdom through the broken heart. I have found themes parallel to that in, uh, in all of the traditions that I've looked into. And you quote the Sufi master Hazrat Inayat Khan, God breaks the heart again and again and again until it stays open. So that's yes. particularly apt in, at, at this time. Yes, I think so. And I, and I, I think that um, all of the people I've ever admired in life are, are people of, of whom it might be said they were men and women of suffering and acquainted with grief, to quote an Old Testament or Hebrew Bible phrase. They were people... Of broken with broken hearts, who whose hearts had been broken by by what by an open-hearted engagement with the world and and in, with the folks I work with, teachers, doctors, lawyers, uh, community organizers, peace activists, um, clergymen and women, uh, anybody who does his or her work with with an open heart is going to have their heart broken. Um, the question isn't whether it's going to happen. The question is when it's going to happen. It's, it comes with the territory. It comes with being uh, a heart-vulnerable person, which, of course, is 
is the source of good and great work to to be fully invested in what one does at that at the level of the heart and i should say incidentally that uh, there is this wonderful ancient meaning of the word heart that isn't just about the seat of the emotions but it's about a, a a center point of convergence in the human self where emotion and intellect and will and and all the gifts that we have converge in the heart. And so the question isn't whether our hearts are going to be broken. The question is, how are we going to hold the brokenheartedness? And uh, and which, which way will it go with us? Will it go toward destruction, or will it go toward uh, choosing life and toward creativity? Um, I, I deeply believe that, that this is not... Um, a romantic fantasy. I, I deeply believe that we have instances in history of people who, who held their brokenheartedness in a creative way that led to something other than more war and more war and more war. And I deeply believe that we can look back on the last six years of American life and say to ourselves, had we held that tension, had we had a national capacity to hold the tension of September 11th, in a creative, life-giving way, had we had leadership, political leadership, that allowed us to do that, um, we would be in a much better and safer place than we are now. Um, by now, we have lost so much goodwill around the world. Uh, we have probably greatly increased the ranks of those who wish us harm. Um, we have you know, failed to win another war. I, I'm baffled by where this this American notion of world supremacy comes from because the last war I can remember us winning uh, was when I was about five years old. So there's a whole set of illusions here, a lot of smoke and mirrors, out of which I want to extract what what can seem like a romantic fantasy, but I think is a real-life possibility, um, which is that we stand in the world in a, in a more open-hearted way that um, leads toward choosing life rather than choosing death. I want to pursue that question of where we're standing in the world, but you mentioned something earlier that was so uh, beautiful that I, I want to come back to it, which was that ancient meaning of the nature of the heart as a place of convergence. Could you say more about that tradition and where you found it and what you have reflected about uh, regarding well, it? Yeah, I think it's, a, I, I can't uh, cite chapter and verse, but I think it's a deep uh, subtext running through <clears throat> wisdom traditions that when they, when they speak about the heart, um, they, they don't mean this modern reductionistic, um, psychologized sense of um, simply... Uh, the seat of the emotions, um, or even even what we might call, I think, more wisely and more richly emotional intelligence, um, I think the heart was understood as that core place in the human self, that, <clears throat> that place of, well, how would we say it, the being and human being, um, that place of identity and integrity, that, that essence of, of who we are where all of our faculties converge. So, so this is not simply an emotional place. It's, a, it's also, at very least, a thinking place. And, and we do have the words of, of one of the ancient theologians, and 
in the Christian tradition who said that the best kind of thinking uh, comes uh, when the mind is descended into the heart, um, po- pointing very directly toward this this image of of a human being thinking not from the top of the tower, as it were, not from that sort of arrogant place that we get into when when all we bring to our work is our heads and, and that sort of superior view we can get from on high. But when the mind, as it were, bows down and descends into the, into the core of the human self, when one is thinking with one's feeling function, with one's body, with one's relationships, with, with one's intuitions, with one's aesthetic sensibilities, as well as one's rationality and one's uh, empirical sensibilities, then, then we recognize what, what emerges from that as, as profound and, and, and wise. It's, it's not uh, intellectual hack work of the sort that happens when, when, when the, the soup we serve each other is this thin soup that's made only of rationality, and data, and and Michael, I I know that this is something that intrigues both you and me. That that when you look at the work of the great scientists of uh, the last couple of centuries, I'm I'm thinking, for example, of Barbara McClintock, the the Nobel Prize winning geneticist. What you find is people whose whose repertoire of knowing was so much richer than simply logic and empirical observation, as important as those things are, but they brought their, the whole self, they brought the heart of the self to their work, and that's what made them great. So the whole self in that sense, uh, is it distinguishable from uh, what people often call the soul? Uh, in your book, A Hidden Wholeness, you say philosophers haggle about what to call this core of our humanity, but I am no stickler for precision. Thomas Merton called it true self. Buddhists call it original nature or big self. Quakers call it the inner teacher or the inner light. Hasidic Jews call it a spark of the divine. Humanists call it identity and integrity. In popular parlance, people often call it soul. So uh, do you distinguish between this descent of the thought process into the heart uh, and soul, or are they really the same? Well, I think they are roughly the same. Um, I, I do think there are some interesting distinctions among those words that, that people can parse to some benefit, but I think that they are, for the most part, distinctions without difference. I guess what I really believe about this, Michael, is that with all of the language you just quoted, uh, we see uh, our species uh, groping to name that which cannot be named. Uh, and, and I've often said, what you name it is of no consequence to me. That you name it is terribly important, because if we fail to try to name this unnameable being and human being, I think the consequence is that we... we drift toward treating each other as raw material, as objects to be manipulated, as, as uh, to put it in Buber's words, as, as it rather than thou, uh, as things. And that, of course, is one of the great toxins uh, of the modern world. 
And so any tradition that helps us uh, name the mystery, I think, is making an important contribution as long as we remember that the name is not the thing it points to and that what it points to remains uh, shrouded in mystery. I think if we can if we can dance with our language that way, um, we, we might get somewhere in these important conversations where we, keep, uh, where we keep saying to each other, now, if you don't name it exactly as I name it, then you're beyond the pale or outside the camp. I've been reading Martin Buber's essays recently, the great uh, German-Jewish uh, philosopher who... Uh, um, who uh, actually was born in uh, Gal- born in Galicia, or spent his early years in Galicia, and then ended up in Germany in the uh, beginning of the Nazi period, and then migrated to went to Israel, uh, where he lived. And I've been very struck by, as I read your work, by the parallels between your thought and Buber's thought. Uh, you both seem to regard. Uh, communities of trust, uh, often small communities of trust, as the, the crucial, crucial crucible in some sense in which uh, the, the true dialogue uh, through which truth emerges uh, can take place. Mm. Yeah, it, it, well, that's, uh, of course, I'm highly honored to be considered anywhere in the circle of, of uh, this great man's way of thinking about the world. Um, I was never a systematic student of Martin Buber, but he, um, he, I picked him up osmotically from a whole variety of sources, including the 11 years I spent at, at Pendle Hill, the, the Quaker community near Philadelphia, where uh, Buber uh, was a great, um, had been a great inspiration. And in fact, um, uh, Maurice Friedman, one of the, uh, who had brought a lot of Buber to this country, uh, was was one of the uh, was was part of the history of, of Pendle Hill. Um, there was a sign out in the garden at Pendle Hill which had a motto on it from Martin Buber that I used to meditate on with great regularity, and I, it's to the point that you just made. Um, it said very simply, "All real living is meeting. All real living is meeting," and um, it just struck me as profoundly true, especially in that Quaker context where the word meeting has considerable freight as a as a sacred form of human gathering and human knowing. Um, that, that Buber was was absolutely right. Um, he he once said, I recall, that that a nation at its very best was a community of communities. And I think that points us towards those circles of trust that you were mentioning, those small-scale um, uh, uh, little platoons, as Edmund Burke called them, or in Alexis de Tocqueville's words, uh, those, uh, that myriad of voluntary associations that helps make a democracy possible. And uh, so I think there's a convergence from many streams of religious and secular thought that Talks speaks to us about the import, the absolute importance of community and and how it is that and I'll come back now to our theme of holding tension, holding the heart in a way that allows it to break open rather than apart. How how it is that 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 the those big themes of possibility can start to become real if 
in those little platoons or in those voluntary associations or in those communities, uh, the myriad communities that constitute the big community, if we are giving people experiences there of tension-holding that is creative rather than destructive, of dealing with our broken-heartedness in, in a way that, that gives life rather than leads to death... You have a beautiful example of, of standing in the tragic gap, as you speak of it. Uh, in the story of a, a Quaker, you are a Quaker, uh, John Woolman, uh, who lived from 1720 to 1770, something like that, uh, and uh, 52 years. I was just remarking on what he accomplished in a life of 52 years and how he and, and the Quaker community held the issue of, of slavery. Could you describe that? Yes, I'd be delighted. It's one of the most inspirational stories I know. And, of course, I, I always feel that if you, if you, once you've found a real-life story of people um, living in a way that might otherwise seem a wish dream, uh, you can never again deny that it, that it would be possible for you to do the same. Um, let me say a word first about this notion of standing in the tragic gap. Um, part of what I've done with this broken-heartedness theme or the tension-holding theme is to come to an understanding that we are always uh, standing in the tragic gap. And by that I mean the gap between uh, what is, uh, what we can see with our own eyes in, in, in today's world, this, this despair and devastation that's all around us. And on the other hand, uh, what 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 could and should be, and I, and I choose those simple words carefully, um, it should be because it's a better place than what we've got, and, and it could be because, because we know it to be a human possibility. Um, uh, I, think, I think what our times require of us is a, are, is a profound understanding of how we're all called to to stand in that in the tragic gap between what is and what could and should be without um, falling out into one side or the other of that gap. Uh, if you fall into too much isness, too much reality, I think what you fall into is is corrosive cynicism. Uh, you simply say, well, this is the way it is and I'll I'll make I'll cut a deal with that. I'll I'll get my my peace and more if I can, and let the devil take the hindmost. If, if, on the other hand, you fall into too much of possibility, you, you revert to a kind of irrelevant idealism where you float above the fray, unanchored in the ground of reality that's all around you. And, and so both corrosive cynicism and irrelevant idealism take us out of the action as it were. And again, the people I admire most are ones who stand in this tragic gap. Tragic, tragic not be simply because it's sad, um, but again, to in invoke a more ancient meaning, I think a Greek meaning of the word tragic. Tragic because it's inevitable. Uh, it will never be otherwise. Uh, take race relations in the United States, which in a moment I think will lead me to a quick rendition of the John Woolman story, um, have, we, have we done 
some things to close the gap between what what is and what could and should be? Well, yes, we, we, we abolished slavery. Have we abolished the evil behind slavery? No. Um, racism is still alive and well, and racial injustice is still alive and well. And, and I think that gap will never fully close. Um, if, if it's not African Americans, then it's going to be someone else in this endless need that we seem to have for some to be up and some to be down. Um, and so authentic living, moral living, requires a capacity to stand in the tragic gap, um, to stand there grounded and active, working for um, something that could and should be better than what is, and yet understanding that it's it's not in one lifetime and probably not in a thousand lifetimes that this gap will 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 be fully closed. Um, the tension will always be there. We will always need people to hold that tension with 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 in a way that opens the heart. So John Woolman is a classic example of someone who did exactly that in in real space and time. He um, a hundred years before the Civil War was thought was fought, uh, John Woolman had a vision in which, it, as he understood it, it was laid upon him by the Lord that Quakers should free their slaves. And um, he went and spoke to his meeting in, in New Jersey, um, his Quaker meeting. Uh, they labored with it, Quaker style, which is never to take a vote, but always to try to reach consensus, which incidentally is, in in the world of decision-making, a way of holding tensions creatively when it's done rightly and well, consensus, consensual decision-making. They labored with, uh, with this prophecy that Woolman was preaching about uh, the the need for Quakers to free their slaves, could not reach consensus on it. But what they did do was to reach consensus that, that for Woolman, this was an absolutely authentic prophecy, that he had had an experience that could not be explained away, that could not be denied or doubted. And so they said, we will support you and your family while you travel among us. Uh, for as long as it takes for this to come to some consensual resolution. In other words, his community said, we're going to invite you to put us right in the middle of this tragic gap between the reality of slavery and what Quakers profess about the equality of all people. We're going to ask you to invite you to hold us there, and we're going to hold it with you, even though we can't agree at the moment as landed gentry that this would be a great thing to do or a needful thing to do. So for 20 years, if you can imagine it, John Woolman traveled up and down the East Coast preaching among Quakers his prophecy. Uh, He was famous for his absolute personal consistency with his message. He always appeared in white clothing, undyed clothing because the dye was a product of slave labor, and he would have nothing to do with that. Um, if he was at a remote farmhouse and he found that the meal uh, that evening were, had been prepared or was being served by slaves, 
he would refuse to eat. He would fast, but he would stay at table and and speak and um, and prophesy. Uh, the the result of this is that twenty years after he began his ministry, and this is now eighty years before the Civil War was fought, Quakers became the first religious community in the United States to free their slaves on Moss, and in um, something like 1787, um, there's a document in the halls of Congress uh, to prove it, uh, Quakers petitioned the United States Congress, uh, now what, 80, 70 or 80 years before the Civil War, petitioned the U.S. Congress that it be the law of the land, that all slaves be freed. So it, to me, it's a fascinating story on all kinds of levels. It's, it's about a man who, who had the spiritual presence to stand in this tragic gap without despairing, without giving up, without falling into cynicism or irrelevant idealism. It's about a community that was willing to hold him there. And one last thing, it's about um, <laughs> the efficiency of the process. A strange phrase to use, but when people say to me, you know, making decisions by consensus and standing in the tragic gap, holding tension, it all sounds very good, but we need to get things done. Um, I, I often will ask them, well, is it is it efficient to free your slaves 80 years before the country is thrown into chaos and, crisis, and murderous crisis around the same issue? Um, I think sometimes we have uh, pretty backwards notions of of what efficient and effective might look like, just as we had in the wake of September 11th, 2001. So the woman story speaks to me on many, many levels. Michelle Moore, who you met uh, over lunch at the Heart of Education conference uh, with me, uh, was very moved by your essay, and, and uh, she sent me an email um, uh, quoting from uh, your essay, quote, we can transform our culture only as we are inwardly transformed, unquote. To me, this implies, she says, an inherent unity between the individual and the whole. Somehow there is a wholeness within each of us that we uncover, open to, work with, which in turn is one with the uncovering of the wholeness outside us. Yet I know in myself there is an unconscious resistance to believe in this interconnection between individual and whole, which creates a drive to do something to help the world out there in a way that is disconnected from seeking wholeness within. What is that disconnect, she asks? How can we become more aware that the unconscious force, uh, uh, become more aware of that unconscious force that separates individual from whole? And I thought that was a, a really interesting um, question for you. Oh, I, I agree. I think that's an extraordinary way of putting it. Um, I think my best way of responding to Michelle, uh, in, in addition to saying thank you for a very stimulating thought and question, would be to refer to this image that I use in my book, A Hidden Wholeness, of what I call life on the Mobius Strip. Um, I, think, I think many of us are acquainted with this This. Uh, shape called the Mobius strip, which you can actually make with a strip of paper, in which 
it sort of looks like a convoluted S joined together at the ends, letter S, uh, as in Sam, joined together at the ends, uh, which if you trace your finger around it, you, you soon find that it has no inner and outer surface, that it has only one surface, and what appears to be the inner keeps merging into what appears to be the outer and vice versa. And I think it's been the most helpful image that I've encountered to support me in the ongoing quest to understand that the world isn't out there for me to act upon as if it were an object external to myself, but that every day, uh, in every moment, I am helping to co-create myself and the world. That's how deeply joined we are uh, in this process that I've come to call life on the Mobius Strip, where what's inside of me flows, if you will, outward um, to to shape uh, my environment, and what's in my environment flows inward to shape me. Uh, ultimately, there is no outer and inner, uh, just as in the great Taoist symbol of yin and yang, there, there's no darkness and light. It's a merging or a blending of the two. Um, and and the question for me, Michael and Michelle, then becomes, um, how can I become so aware, so constantly aware of this continual exchange between inner and outer in life on the Mobius Strip, that I can make choices as I travel that that strip, as I make that journey, that I can make choices about the that ongoing exchange that are, on balance, more life-giving than death-dealing. Um, uh, so that I'm thinking, I'm reflecting, I'm holding, I'm meditating, I'm praying, I'm, th- I'm doing all of this from the heart um, on the question, um, how do I internalize the environment in a way that moves toward life, and how do I offer up from within myself that which moves toward life in the, in the so-called external, external world? It, there's a sense in which that's become the only question I know how to ask on my own spiritual journey. How can I make choices about this exchange that are, on balance, more life-giving than death-dealing? And, and I'll just say one quick word uh, about that little phrase, on balance. To me, that's an important phrase, because to me, this, this quest for living with authenticity, living with integrity, living in a way that gives life to yourself and... and and everything around you um, is is a is a question which we're going to keep falling down. We're going to keep screwing up, to use a technical theological term. We, we we're going to be in constant need of forgiveness from ourselves and from each other. And you know, if we don't if we don't understand that, we're not going to be able to stand in the tragic gap. Um, part of standing in the tragic gap is falling down and getting up again and falling down and getting up again. And that means cutting ourselves some slack. Um, it means uh, being surrounded by people who who understand and, and love us even in our many, many imperfections and giving that same gift to ourselves. 
so I think I think maybe part of the response to Michelle's very important question is to say that even as we move toward living more consciously on the Mobius strip, we say to ourselves, um, "I'm remembering it right now, but I'll probably forget it later this afternoon, and I'm going to forgive myself for that in advance." And that's part of what I, I really appreciate about your work, Parker, is is that uh, you're very open to and, and draw on um, the tragedies and the periods of darkness uh, in your own life. And uh, you don't uh, press upon us a spirituality that somehow seems unreachable, but rather uh, just a, a way of being in the world that says, look, uh, we're going to aim uh, to live with an open heart. We're going to aim to live in, in service to life. Uh, but we're going to fall down all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that affirmation. I'm glad it reads that way. It's certainly the way I need to talk to myself. Um, as, as you know, Michael, I have written about my several uh, three major journeys with clinical depression um, where... Uh, it's not so much that one is lost in the dark as that one feels that one has become the dark. Uh, that's certainly how it felt to me. There's, you lose your sense of self so profoundly that you couldn't distinguish between yourself and the dark. You are the dark. And, <clears throat> you know, when you've, when you've been in that place, and many, many people have, or some version of it, we all... We all have our own version of, of the darkness. And when you've been there, um, if you're fortunate enough to survive, and I, I, I truly don't know um, how we survive these things, grace is the word that comes quickly to mind, and I'm not even sure what that means. But um, if you're fortunate enough to survive, um, you, you, you have a huge need to make meaning uh, out, of, out of that devastation, that, that annihilation. And um, I think for me, part of the meaning-making has been to understand this need for forgiveness, for a kind of humility about our, our thinking and our experience, um, for a kind of offering of grace to each other and and to ourselves, and uh, to understand that that we have a real problem when we try to live life at altitude, which for me means living life out of the ego or out of uh, a kind of up-up-and-away spirituality or out of a set of abstract ideas that are not grounded in the earth or even out of a high ethic that has that may sound noble, but has nothing to do with who we really are. And, and the problem we have with living life at altitude is that when we fall, um, we have a long way to fall, and it might kill us. Um, but if you live life on the ground, in that humus that is so related to humility, and I think to forgiveness as well, um, why then you can fall down and and not kill yourself. It may hurt, but and it may be embarrassing, but you can brush yourself off and get up again. So if some of the things I've written reflect uh, some of that meaning-making out of what otherwise would be, for me, um, 
just uh, devastating experiences, then I'm, I'm very grateful for that. You know, Parker, I, I've often thought there are two forms of depression. Obviously, in the literature on clinical depression and bipolar states, there are, there are technically two forms of uh, depression. Uh, but beyond the, the two forms in the, in the clinical literature, it often seems to me that there's one depression that is, in, in effect, biochemical. That it's, it's inherited, it runs in families. But there's another form of depression, which you find uh, written about in the spiritual literature, where, in effect, uh, it is the, the animal self within us that rebels against our high standards for our own way of living and refuses to follow. And there's an interesting spiritual literature about uh, the work it takes to, um, to sort of coax that animal back into vitality in the service of uh, what we really seek to be. Have you ever reflected on on those two kinds of uh, of depression? If you follow that logic, the difference between the biochemical depression, and I think often when it's the kind you describe, these great episodes of major depression, uh, then it's usually biochemical in nature. But you know, I have often experienced depression in my life that I don't think is biochemical, and I think is more, uh, you know, the the vital animal self in me rebelling against my efforts to, um, you know, live as a decent human being, as it were. Yes. Oh, I, I think that's a very important distinction, and I follow it exactly. In fact, there, uh, there's a place or two <clears throat> in writing about my own depression where I've, uh, where I've made that distinction, because I think it's an important one. Um, you know, on the biochemical side, you, you simply absolutely want people to have access to the best possible antidepressant drugs um, or or, uh, drugs treating bipolar disorder, whatever it may be, and and to have that access uh, and and to have that help without a sense of shame or weakness. That's simply a correction uh, to a a genetic mistake, as it were, uh, in the organism. and at the other end of the continuum, I, I agree completely, are the situational depressions, is what I call them, where you've, you've gotten crosswise with, with true self. And, and animal instinct, for me, isn't a bad image for true self, because I think of the soul as this wild animal that knows how to survive in very hard places, um, but is also exceedingly shy and exceedingly difficult to see until we establish the the right circumstances i think i think what's what's confusing about depression is that <clears throat> biochemical depression can can create situational disorders and situational disorders can can create biochemical effects so if a person has insomnia night after night after night because you've gotten crosswise with your own truth and you're profoundly troubled by that, um, that's going to kick into some bad brain chemistry that's at least going to mimic, um, if not actually replicate, that other kind of depression. So among the experts that I've talked to about this, the bottom line always is we we really don't know a lot about this. But uh, I'll give you a concrete example of the kind of thing that that saddens me. Um, There's a 
there's a um, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Michigan who has actually made the case in in refereed journals that um, depression uh, is an evolutionary adaptation in some cases to keep us from going too far down a path in life that we would be unable to negotiate were we to continue. And so depression comes along to shut us down um, and unable to, to go any further down that, down that path, that death-dealing path, really, forcing us to turn back and find something that is more, uh, that is more true to ourselves. And, and what saddens me is that this kind of evidence that comes from the heart of, the, of academic life, from, from good research, um, is so often ignored in the case of, let's say, a, a second-year college student who comes into health services with a, a, a pretty clear case of depression. And the only prescription offered is an antidepressant when, in fact, it's because this young person is trying to be uh, a lawyer, the lawyer that, that his or her parents want the kid to be, rather than the artist that, that the person's soul wants them to be. So it, I absolutely agree with that distinction, and I think it's an important one to keep in mind. It's interesting that you mention uh, this theory out of evolutionary biology because it seems to me we might both agree that there is a third kind of depression, uh, which uh, is an expression, uh, one expression, of, of deep despair about the nature of the world today. And, of course, that brings us back uh, to your essay on the politics of the brokenhearted, but there's a dimension of it that, that I don't find so much in the essay, and I haven't really seen elsewhere in your work, which is the distinction between our despair at ongoing injustice and racism and war and uh, those, uh, those terrible burdens of, of being human and, and how we have lived together on this earth. And this new phenomenon that we have created of, of the destruction of the fabric of life itself, of, of climate change, of the destruction of the ozone layer, of toxic chemicals, of, uh, you know, just the, the absolute shredding of, of the very fiber of life itself. Uh, the other, the other uh, tragedies of being human have been with us uh, from the start, uh, and and we continuously, you know, seek to to cope with them. In some ways, we make progress; in others ways, we fall back. But somehow, to me, uh, there is something qualitatively different about destroying, um, you know, the the biochemical structure of life itself. And to me, it uh, it evokes a different form of despair from the despair of standing in the tragic gap uh, between what we want the world to be and work for it to be and uh, uh, and what it actually is. And I, I just wondered, have you have you reflected on that distinction and the different quality of those despairs? Well, I think, Michael, this is a wonderful example of why I so value uh, dialogue with you, um, because you and, and some other folks I know take me um, constantly to the frontiers of my own understanding. 
in the most uh, productive and challenging kinds of ways. Um, you know, my first response is to say, no, I haven't gone there very much because I may be afraid of the despair that would engulf me if I did. That, that, that you're right, that this is a quantum leap in, in, uh, from the tragic gap to something for which we don't even have a name or from the perennial tragic gaps in which we stand uh, into a, a kind of um, death-dealing novelty that, that hardly any of us really know how to think about. And, uh, you know, I, I may be one of those people who, um, while fully acknowledging the the facts of uh, of environmental destruction as uh, and, and uh, destruction at the molecular level that you're talking about, um, while fully acknowledging all of that and not doubting or denying it for a moment, is afraid of walking uh, ho- wholly into the consequences. And I, I, this is the kind of self-reflection that I find very, very important as I travel the Mobius Strip. Where is fear? possibly keeping me from going someplace that, that I need to go. Um, I, I've, always, I've always had a struggle with anything that, um, that, that sounded like apocalyptic vision because uh, it seemed to me, on the, on the one hand, it may be true. On the other hand, it's the perfect excuse for not doing anything. And so <clears throat> I'm wondering if, if, you know, maybe a way forward in my own thinking is to say this, the, the, the problem that you're pointing to, Michael, which, for which problem is a, is a very weak word, the, 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 the ultimate trouble that you're pointing to um, is different from the tragic gap, and yet somehow one has to learn to stand in it with the same uh, sense of, uh, of, of bearing witness, of, of maintaining hope, and, and of um, acting out of integrity in the way one does in the tragic gap. I think maybe I don't know quite how to do that yet. Well, I think it's right that the, the, the response to it does need to be essentially the same as standing in, in the tragic gap with respect to the, the perennial uh, tragedies of, of being human. One of the, the, one of the things I did as I prepared for this talk is I made a, a list of some of the people that uh, throughout your work you refer to, uh, Thomas Merton, E.F. Schumacher, Martin Buber, Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, Polanyi, uh, people like that. Uh, uh, and then I made a list of uh, the people, the, the sort of social activists or the, the people engaged in, in, uh, in uh, action that you, that you offered as examples of people standing in the tragic gap. The Dalai Lama, Aung San Suu Kyi, Nelson Mandela, Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King, and Thich Nhat Hanh. And then I made a list of some of the sociologists with whom you have uh, you know, engaged uh, over time. Uh, Philip Reef, Richard Sennett, C. Wright Mills, people like that. And I came to have a sense of how in your journey uh, there was this dialogue between the, the Quaker inner journey and the 
uh, social activism that comes out of the, the Quaker way of being in inner journey and in community, and the sociologist, the academic, the observer uh, of uh, the, these very phenomena that you were thinking about. And it struck me that that you have used the Quaker experience uh, really as actually a deeper form of analysis uh, in which you found a common uh, creative resonance with all the great spiritual traditions in ways of opening the heart uh, through community, through engagement, through the creation of circles of trust, and that these circles of trust uh, became a theory of social change for you. Uh, they became uh, sort of out of this engagement with social action, which you share with uh, Thomas Merton, among others. Uh, you created a, a pedagogy, you created a epistemology, you, you created a, a way of being in the world in which, as you put it, thinking didn't lead you to action, but acting and engaging led you to a new way of thinking. And I wonder, just as you... In a sense, this is an effort to do what you talk about when you talk about the Quaker tradition of, of clearing committees, uh, where people ask people honest questions based on what they've heard. And you describe the, the process toward the end of a clearing com- uh, committee as mirroring. So in effect, what I'm trying to do is, is mirror some of what I have found in your writings and ask you, have I understood you rightly? Oh my goodness, what a lovely, what a lovely piece of mirroring and what a lovely question uh, for me to be thinking about at age 68, um, because you certainly did tick off some very important um, mileposts, passages, or I suppose more accurately, continuing partners on, on my journey. Um, and I was laughing, chuckling to myself a little bit about <clears throat> all the wonderful ideas I got from, and examples I got from those people, and the one that popped up for me was C. Wright Mills saying, uh, saying one time, you know, it's 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 really not the crackpot idealists we have to worry about; it's the crackpot realists. Yeah, isn't that a beautiful phrase? <laughs> it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And if it ever applied, it does it does today. Um, the um, yes, I think I think you're you're, you're absolutely right that that um, the, the the thinkers, the kinds of thinkers, um, the sort of radical sociologists and, and uh, organizational analysts that you named, um, the uh, spiritual leaders, the the action leaders, um, <clears throat> that that these people, um, what I learned from them, what I continue learning from them, started at some point in my life, and it would it would date back to my mid-30s, because I didn't encounter Quakerism in any significant way until I was 35 years old and sort of left my academic career to move to this community called Pendle Hill. Quakerism then became the matrix uh, in which I was able to hold what otherwise might look like um, a great... Um, hodgepodge of stuff, um, a matrix that that made it coherent for me, and and out of which, yes, very, you're very perceptive. I I extracted, I think, a pedagogy. Um, I'm not sure that Quakers themselves think of their way of being in the world as pedagogical, and I can give you a, a quick example. Um, of what came to me with some power when I was 
somewhere between 35 and 40 years old. Um, I had been living at Pendle Hill for a year, two, or three. Um, I had come under the influence, as I said, of this Martin Buber notion that all real living is meeting, that real living is something that happens between us as much as it happens within us and around us, um, and, and had learned that for Quakers, the word meeting had, a, had special import and weight. So at the heart of Quaker life is the meeting for worship, and they mean meeting quite literally as an encounter of souls, an encounter of spirits, um, an encounter that's very much in this world, but um, but it's not altogether of this world because it involves people settling into a deeper dimension than we normally give ourselves access to. So they have the meeting for worship at the center of of their uh, corporate life, and then when they came together to make decisions um, in what we would normally call a business meeting, um, they called it meeting for worship on the occasion of business, um, and and similar phrasings for other sorts of gatherings. Well, I found that fascinating, that everything was was meeting, and meeting had these deep roots, that involved a transcendent sort of vertical dimension, if you will, as well as a horizontal dimension. And so I had by that time become dean of studies at Pendle Hill, um, supervising a small teaching staff of maybe six or eight people and the coursework that carried um, 35 or 40 adult students through a year of residency there. And I wrote a little essay called Meeting for Learning. I said, in effect, surely this is how Quakers understand their pedagogical presence in the world or what it is that we are attempting to do or need to do in our classwork if we are to be faithful to this tradition. We, we're having meetings for learning, which have this, this vertical, transcendent dimension as well as a horizontal dimension. Um, and uh, I found out, much to my surprise, that I apparently was the first person in Quaker history to ever name um, their educational experiences as meetings for learning. Um, so I guess I guess I did um, extract from Quaker tradition a kind of pedagogical sensibility that then got translated into circles of trust. And if I may just for the sake of whoever's listening, and I'm glad to say more about this later, um, about 10 years ago, as, as you know, Michael, um, I helped to found a small nonprofit organization that's called the Center for Courage and Renewal that is now doing circle of trust work around the country with um, public school educators, with clergy, uh, with physicians and lawyers and community organizers and philanthropists and many other kinds of people. We're in uh, 30 states and 50 cities with this work that, that takes this pedagogy, which started for me at Pendle Hill and, and was informed by the example of all the folks you named, that takes it out into the larger world and, and gives access to it uh, to, to people who, who aren't necessarily connected with with these names or this literature, the literature behind the names at all. 
and there, there's a website, of course, at www.couragerenewal. Uh, those two words run together as one, couragerenewal.org. And we will have an opportunity to explore further your work with the Center for Courage and Renewal. But for now, Parker Palmer, thank you so much for joining us at the New School. Thank you, Michael. Parker, that was just wonderful. I, I could have gone on a great deal longer. Well, your questions were, were so evocative. Thank you. So, uh, who's on the line with us right now? Can we just, is Rick Jackson on the line with us? Uh, yes, I am, Michael. Hey, thank Rick. You. Welcome. So glad you're here. Uh, Rick, have you been on since close to the beginning of the call? From the beginning, yeah. Great. Uh, You obviously are with Marcy Jackson uh, and with Parker, one of the uh, co-founders of the Center for Courage and Renewal. And I'd just like to start by asking you uh, to offer your reflections uh, of any kind on the conversation so far. Well... Parker has used the phrase from time to time um, of his uh, admiration for being able to put wheels on ideas. Um, in this conversation, I've been reminded of the, the power and importance for our times of, of these ideas, and I think the, the work that we do at the center uh, in programs like the Courage to Teach and the Courage to Lead uh, are ways in which we have created in retreat context using the Clearness Committee process that was being spoken of at the end to work with teachers, to work with school principals, and increasingly to work with people in other serving professions, uh, physicians and nurses, uh, clergy and congregational leaders, uh, people in philanthropy, um, to do this inner, outer work that was much um, at the heart of of your conversation over the last hour. Um, And then to take that inner work back into their workplaces uh, to, to live life on the Mobius Strip, to use Parker's image there, um, and in so doing with a kind of wholeness and dedication to, to teach and to uh, heal and to live in ways that, um, that are really important for our time. Thank you, Rick. I'm gonna, yeah, Michael, Parker. I'm just going to say that uh, Rick very kindly used that, uh, that phrase, putting wheels on ideas, and, and I will just say that if it weren't for Rick Jackson and Marcy Jackson, the co-directors of the Center for Courage and Renewal, there wouldn't be hardly any wheels on my ideas. They, they have brought such huge gifts over the last 10 years to, to uh, transporting these things around the country and creating vehicles that people can actually take, take journeys in. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, just so grateful to them for that. And I share that gratitude. Uh, Rick has uh, done this work here at Commonweal, our center in West Marin County, with uh, people involved in the lonely and strange world of philanthropy. And uh, so uh, I have a sense, I've sat in on those sessions, and I have a, a deep sense of their power. I'd like to open the, the conversation now to some of the other folks on the line to hear their questions. Uh, questions, please? I have a question. Please identify uh, yourself. Michael and Parker, a comment. Yeah, yeah. I'm Dr. Roy Ozan. Um, and one the comment is I have been encouraging life-enhancing choices as opposed to life-degenerating choices in many realms of, of health and healing. 
And an example which relates to this call would be looking at this question of biochemical depression. And really, I'm totally convinced from my experience and what I have seen, the results of treatment, is that bio, using the words genetic predisposition, a genetic mistake, we are really missing that this so-called biochemical depression is a result of life degenerating choices that we have been making unknowingly. And so I just want to put that out there because with homeopathy, we treat it quite differently, very mm. successfully, mm. and we can see its history. It is not coming out of the blue. And then I want to offer a third, just a proposal, and that is meetings for living, meetings for making these choices about life-enhancing ways that we live. Uh, I just love that direction because I think it is how we need to stand in the tension instead of taking the easy way out and labeling depression. It's no different than cancer or diabetes. These are end stages of taking life-degenerating choices. Thank you. Thank you very much, Royal. Uh, Parker, do you have a comment? Well, thank you so much. I, uh, first of all, on, on the first comment, I'll just say how grateful I am whenever uh, what for me is some new light gets shed on uh, this very vexing uh, question of depression. And um, even as I was saying those words, genetic mistake, I kind of wondered about them, wondered what I was really saying and whether I really meant it. So thank you for that, um, for that heads up. And thank you also for the reference to homeopathy. There certainly have been uh, times in my life and certain issues in my life where the homeopathic approach has uh, proven much more efficacious than the allopathic approach. Um, I'll just say quickly that I think Rick, would, Rick Jackson and Marcy Jackson would agree um, that the work for the Center of Courage and Renewal is, is very much about um, meetings for living, uh, which is a phrase that I like a lot. Um, we we see our work, which is long, I should quickly say, is long-term retreat work, uh, anywhere from a year and a half to two years of five to eight retreats of three or four days each, so that people take a real journey in community with each other. We see our work as giving these good folks. Um, in public education, in medicine, in law, and so forth, in the ministry, a chance to, my shorthand for it is, rejoin soul and role. And I think that's another way of saying living uh, authentically, living fully invested, uh, really, really living. And I will take your comments about uh, depression very much to heart and, and try to learn from them. Thank you. Other questions, please. Uh, Michael, you start with the, the title of uh, Politics of the Brokenhearted. Is there a symmetrical area uh, on the other side of Politics of the Unbrokenhearted? And that question was from my friend Barry Custer. Uh, Parker, any thoughts about the, the Politics of the Unbrokenhearted? Well, um, I, I guess uh, my, my first response to that, um, in addition to wanting to know more about the question, is is to say that that for me, um, the title came from from uh, asking myself, what could I possibly have in common with the fundamentalist fanaticism 
the death-dealing fundamentalist fanaticism, either on the Islamic side of the equation or on the Christian side of the equation. Uh, among my own uh, Christian uh, compatriots in this country, what could I possibly have in common with people who believe that their way of, of putting words to these unnameable realities um, is the only right way, and that, uh, that, that any violation of their formulae uh, must lead eventually to some kind of destructive act against the offender. And uh, baffled as I was by what I might have in common with them intellectually and spiritually, I think my breakthrough came from listening to this chorus of brokenheartedness in the world that both they and I are brokenhearted over um, over the degradations of contemporary culture, and I think Michael has added a dimension behind that of contemporary of, of, of the very ecosystem in which we're embedded. Um, and I, my my effort in the politics of the brokenhearted is to find common common cause among folks who share this experience of brokenheartedness, which which I can, is a journey that I'm I continue to be on, and and I guess I have to say that I in in this journey that's gone on for several years now, um, I have yet to find anybody who isn't brokenhearted about something important in this day and time. Other questions, please. Michael, this is not, this is Rick again, not so much a question as uh, towards the end when you were, um, I think, very helpfully and in a very caring and challenging way uh, raising the distinction between some of history's timeless challenges um, and some of our new human challenges made uh, contributions to challenges, it, it led me to think about, um, nevertheless, the importance of what you call the, a kind of pedagogy that, that uh, Parker, uh, building on the sociological background, uh, but the years of experience at Pendle Hill has helped to create, and, and you too, of course, at Commonweal with the Cancer Help Program, a, a pedagogy that brings people together face-to-face -to -face over time. Um, to share their own experiences and to hear from others' experiences. And just, I couldn't help but think of the, the power of that for these very kinds of issues. If we could create more venues for such uh, conversations, uh, not past each other, <laughs> but with and to each other, including the fears that surround them, that that, that could be possibly very efficacious. Well, I agree with that deeply, Rick. Uh, you know, I was reflecting as I prepared for this call um, and went to your website and, and looked at your list of values uh, with which you do this work, you know, beautiful values, and, and uh, thought about Parker's 11 years at Pendle Hill, the Quaker community, uh, starting in the mid-1970s. And then literally as I was bicycling over this morning to do this uh, conversation, I thought, you know, gee... I've been living in community at Commonweal for the last 32 years, and I hadn't really thought about that in some 
strange way. But what struck me, and it's a conversation Rachel Naomi Remen and I have have had um, uh, in some depth, um, is that at Commonweal we decided that we were not going to create or make any effort to create uh, a, quote, spiritual community. We weren't even going to try to create a, quote, intentional community. That all we were going to try to do is create a nonprofit center uh, that could do good work in the world with, you know, kids and cancer and other chronic diseases and the environment and physicians and so forth. Um, but that there would be no you know, entry, uh, uh, there would be no entry criteria except that people were good at doing whatever they did and that they treated each other with kindness. Those were, were about as far as we went. And, and one of the things, and, and part of our logic was that in so many of the, the spiritual communities uh, that both of us had been part of, that the effort to be more than we are created this vast shadow which uh, operated uh, in really paralyzing ways for the effectiveness of the community and, and often made it very difficult if the community was involved in doing real work in the world to get the real work done. Um, and so, you know, I thought it might be interesting for the three of us and others to reflect on this paradox that, that as one makes explicit the values of community, that the effort to live up to those values uh, creates shadow, which in turn undermines the community. And our solution, which I don't think was particularly brilliant, but, but it's a sort of a, um, you know, it's served us reasonably well for 32 years, was not to try to create intentional community. And Parker, by the way, you talk about, uh, I noticed in your work, at least as, as I remember, that there are, in effect, you talk about two kinds of community. There are communities like Pendle Hill or other intentional communities, but you often you also talk about just the places where people just happen to, you know, the public places where people come into community with each other. Uh, in your work on on the stranger and so on and so forth, you, you talk about that different form of community, um, and it's that I think it's that second form of community that, to a certain degree, we opted for in order to avoid the perils of the first. Well, that's a fascinating observation, and uh, <clears throat> I know that Rick would share a lot of this w- with me as well, that um, on the one hand, I'm reminded of Kurt Vonnegut's distinction between real communities and false communities, which, as you may right. recall, he called carasses and grand saloons. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the late, great Kurt Vonnegut yeah. is so missed yeah. uh, already. He, the Grand saloons were groups of people who consciously and intentionally set out to be communities and then screwed everything up as a result <laughs> of their consciousness and intentionality. And carasses were people who didn't even know they were connected to each other hardly, kind of quietly doing God's work in the world right. through invisible intersections. And I've always loved that, that distinction. I'll just say that, I mean, this is a topic that someday we'll have a larger conversation on, but... Um, one of the things that I cherish about the Quaker tradition that I learned as a rubric of community for me, and this goes very much along with, with, your, um, with your comment, Michael, the less you say about it, the better. Um, the Quakers have this wonderful saying, don't speak unless you can improve upon the silence. 
And, and there's, there is, in Quakerism, what I call this minimalist approach to community. There's, there's not a lot of proscriptive stuff. Um, and, and there's, there's not a lot of, of sort of explicit nobility. Um, there's not even a creed um, in Quakerism. There, there, there's no um, sort of statement of faith you have to agree to. What there is instead are, are journals of people's experience trying to uh, live life-giving lives in the world. And one of the things we've done in the courage, what we call courage work, courage to teach, courage to lead, and so forth, um, is, is to create our own version of a minimalist approach so that for example, one of the basic ground rules in our groups is no fixing, no saving, no advising, and no setting straight. Well, that that sort of rules out some things we like to do with each other that can mess things up and and lead to you know delusions of adequacy or or worse. Um, but they it but that that ground rule no fixing no saving no advising and no setting straight doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do it just tells you these are a few things that we're not going to be doing during the two years that we journey together and and we have found that these this minimalist approach to community um creates a, a safe space where I, I guess the phrase that comes to mind is lincoln's phrase the better angels of our nature come forward and we are able, in a sort of disentangled way, and in a way that doesn't involve grandiosity, to be silent when we need to be silent, to offer our our companionship to another person in the form of listening rather than fixes. Um, on and on it goes. These simple human ways of being together that I think, you know, give you a 32-year run in, in the case of Commonweal. Uh, rather than being a flash in the pan that burns itself out uh, through an excess of nobility. Rick here again, I just want to maybe uh, add a footnote to that, Parker, and that is uh, there's a paradox, I think, at the heart of of this approach that holds humility together with courage, that there's something about um, bearing witness to this... um, this kind of uh, inner work of another, and I think the John Woolman story is, is richly illustrative for us this morning, um, uh, that uh, a humility that actually leads towards uh, courageous actions and courageous decisions, uh, the kinds of things that you call Parker choices to live divided no more, actually evokes a kind of courage in others who are in that circle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's the it's not at all navel gazing. It's it's a kind of deep stirring of the soul that I think uh, that could then lead to a kind of change agentry or renewed uh, commitment to to be a person um, on one's path, both inwardly and outwardly in the world, that can really make a difference. Mm-hmm. Other questions and comments, please. I know I still have pages of them, but I want to give other people an opportunity. Hi, this is Jim Quay. I'm feeling once again very privileged to be telephonically in the presence of Parker Palmer and Michael Lerner, this wonderful conversation. My, my question or comment or ramble is sort of about the, um, 
it goes back to what Barry Custer was asking about the politics of the unbrokenhearted. My own experience, and then Parker had this wonderful answer that everybody is brokenhearted about something. I say this because one of the challenges of the work seems to be there's a readiness that you have to have to be open to certain kinds of things. And we live in a culture where uh, we're so well defended and we're so enabled by a popular culture that's designed to distract us and entertain us away from our brokenheartedness. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, if, if you're creating a new school, um, you know, the, the, you have to be ready for a certain kind of, gee, it's almost suffering, I think, in order to be open to these kinds of lessons and gifts. Could you, could you comment on that? Mm. Well, first of all, let me say how wonderful it is to hear Jim Quay's voice. And hello, Jim. Um, Jim is Jim is one of our uh, now nearly 150 uh, marvelous facilitators of courage work around the country. In, in Jim's case, out in California, uh, out in California from where I sit in Madison, Wisconsin, <laughs> that is to say. Um, yeah, I think that. Um, that we are well defended from our brokenheartedness. And, of course, the thicker the defense, the, the, the more profound the sign that a broken, hearted, a, a broken heart lurks beneath. Um, I, think, I think we need, as part of our pedagogy, to help people translate um, this, this experience um, in, in in the terms of brokenheartedness, translate the experience of hard-heartedness to, to look at the other side and see how broken the heart really is. Let, let me give you a very concrete example. Um, one of the things that we found early on, 10 years ago, when we started going around the country into local communities, um, asking uh, people with means or people with influence in the community to um, help us support financially a two-year program for these wonderful K-12 through teachers that are, carrying, are doing so much heavy lifting in our society um, and, and doing it while taking so much abuse from the society itself. So we would sit down around a table with the bankers and the lawyers and the philanthropists and so forth and so on to talk about a, a support program for K-12 through educators. And we learned that the first thing everybody wanted to do was to, in effect, express their anger at public, the public schools or the, the politics around public schools by making their case for the voucher system or for prayer in the schools or whatever their, their ideological standpoint was. There was a lot of angry energy around this subject. There is a lot of angry energy around this subject of public education in our society. But we found that we could do a very simple thing to change the dance. And I think you, you do this not by, by running headlong at brokenheartedness, but you, you do what we did. We said to these folks, let's go around the table before we start talking about public education and introduce ourselves by telling the story of, an in, of, of a teacher who somehow touched our lives. 
And almost invariably, by the time you get to the fifth or sixth person, there would be tears in some eyes as we heard moving stories of teachers who had intervened in a child's life at a point of family dysfunction or a point of personal despair, hopelessness. And by the time those self-introductions finished, the question would no longer be, how do I defend my ideological anger about public education? The question would be, how can we help create more public school teachers like the ones who touched the lives in this room? Which is a question that comes out of the broken heart of knowing that this system is crushing so many good folks. So that's an effort, Jim, to just to be very concrete about a pedagogy that, again, invites out the better angels of our nature. I, I frankly believe that it's because of the conditions under which our so-called public dis- discussions proceed, uh, including the conditions in universities, um, that that what we get is hard-heartedness and defendedness rather than the kind of open-hearted dialogue that, that allows the broken heart, uh, the, the struggling soul, to, to show up. Parker, we're just about at the end of the time, and I just want to say that um, I just want to encourage anyone who is not deeply familiar with your work to go beyond uh, the essay we discussed and and look at your books. Uh, Your seventh book, uh, A Hidden Wholeness, uh, is just a... uh, a stunning piece of work. Uh, And uh, I have pages of notes that I want to ask you about, about tell the truth slant and the power of metaphor as a mediating third thing to help create circles of trust and speak deep to deep about the rules that you've been describing and living the questions on questions to bring out the shy soul, laughter and silence, uh, uh, and the third way of nonviolence and, and so on. Um, I realized, Parker, as I reread you, that um, after, uh, after 22 years of uh, about 160 cancer help programs, that you were helping me understand better than I understood uh, what we do in the cancer help program. And um, that was a very moving experience that somehow uh, your uh, life work had uh, brought you a clarity um, that... Um, was deeply helpful to me and something I I thought I finally understood a little about. And yet here is this whole new level of clarity about what actually happens in that circle of trust of the cancer help program. Well, thank you so much, Michael. uh, To be connected in any way with the work that you and and Rachel, and please give her my very best, that you folks do out there is, is high honor. And thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity today. We'll have to do it again. We will. And Rick, thank you so much for being with us, and thanks to all of you who've been on. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.